All right. We can find our seats. We're going to get started. We have an opportunity uh, today after the service. If you are available, there's just going to be a time of prayer. There's some families that have just been going through different things and uh, struggles. I know uh, if you're familiar with some of the situations, whether it's the Mervars, I know I don't see Anna right off the top of my head, but the Gerbers have gone through just a lot of stuff. And we just want to pray as a family and pray for people. And um, so, uh, Helen, can I put you in charge of that? She's got some specific requests, so. So we want to remember the importance of prayer. We, we have declared uh, since the beginning of last year, we've tried to say, mention it over and over again, that the two foundational things that I would love for this church to be known for is the word and prayer. <clears throat> the word and prayer. And, and so those are some of the things that we want to emphasize. So um, we are going to continue through the book of Mark today. Um, so if you would, find your copy of God's Word, or there's a pew Bible in front, uh, uh, hopefully. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read through. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. My little phone piece just fell off. Is that, is that bad? Just fell off. I think I got it back on. All right. So if you would, turn to your copy of uh Mark 6, stand with me as we read through this. Mark 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. You know, one of the reasons why, there's two reasons I read this. Um, One is to help me get my thoughts collected again. And two, because I want us to remember that this is what we're talking about, not Nate's ideas. It's the Word of God. So Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 1, it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if a place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would just speak to us this morning, that you would speak truth. Father, that you would give us hope for the day that you would give us encouragement as we walk through this life. And so, Lord, we also pray that you would challenge us 
and exhort us to walk in truth. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Mark 6. Is this on? It doesn't. It is. Yeah, I think so. So I'm going to walk through the story. I mean, I know sometimes I have some really alliterated points, and I've got some, some points in it. Um, but I want to walk through the text this morning and kind of walk through some different things, um, some stuff that kind of stuck out to me as I was studying it this week. Uh, the text starts with, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And as I was reading and studying this text, this week, the first thing that stands out to me, which I think was the principle uh, of the text that, that caught my attention as I kind of dug into it and thought through it, is this phrase at the end of that first verse. It says, and his disciples followed him. And his disciples followed him. So, so put it in, in context here. Jesus had just got done with his incredible preaching ministry and these things that he had been healing people and, and he had uh, cast out a legion of demons. He heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He, he uh, 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 raises a woman, a little girl up from the dead. All these incredible things are happening. And then he gets done from there and he goes back to his hometown. And I love the phrase, and his disciples followed him. That is our calling in life, is it not? That we would be followers of Jesus. That's all we're called to be, is followers of Jesus. We are called to follow Him. And, and Jesus, when He came to His disciples and He called them, and, and you can read through the, those passages we've already looked at, where it says that Jesus came up to Matthew at His tax booth, and He said, hey, Matthew, come, follow Me. And as a follower of Christ myself, the question I often ask is, what am I supposed to do? What does that look like? How do I follow Jesus? What does that mean even? Well, I think uh, we have some, some interesting lessons, some incredible lessons here as His disciples followed Him. This, the call, this is, this is what they got to witness and see and ultimately following somebody is to watch what they do, and then to repeat it or to follow after their example. And here Jesus has called them. They follow him, and he goes into his hometown, and we get a couple of important lessons. And, and so we want to walk through this text and see what exactly the lessons that we can take away from them following Jesus and what they saw, what they experienced, and what they learned. So it starts in verse 2. It says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, What did this man, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is he not the carpenter? And it goes on and says a number of things. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Okay? Jesus has been out preaching, doing incredible things, and he decides to return to his hometown. It's actually the last recorded visit we have to Nazareth. It's actually the last time it's recorded that Jesus goes into a synagogue. It doesn't mean that it's the last time he goes into a synagogue, but it's the last recorded time. And keep in mind, this is a different time. He says the exact same thing, um, but it's a different account than Luke chapter 4. Turn to Luke chapter 4. I want to I put some perspective on this, this visit and, and kind of... Uh, 
connect some things. So Luke chapter 4, specifically verses 16 through 30. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry versus that other one, which is about a year and a half later, Jesus returns. Okay, so this is what I'm going to read it for you real quick. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, uh, where he had been caught up, brought up, I'm sorry, and as, his cust- and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now listen to this. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. That's the beginning of his ministry. He walks into Nazareth. Notice a couple of things. It says, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He went the first time alone. He didn't have his disciples. The second time, he brings his disciple. First time, uh, there were no miracles. This time, it tells us later on in the text in Mark chapter 6 that a few miracles were done. And the first visit, he was kicked out. They, they, they went to throw him over the cliff. The second time, they're just completely indifferent and apathetic towards him. Okay? He went into the synagogue. Luke tells us it was his custom. You have to understand what's going on here, that Jesus had been to this synagogue probably over a thousand times. If you do the math, from the time he was a young boy, he grew up in this town, uh, till the time he was 30, probably went 52 weeks out of the year. You multiply that up, it's over a thousand times. They knew him there. It's a small town. Nazareth is a small town. Everybody knew him there. Everybody knows everybody. If you grew up, I grew up in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. There's nothing that gets out. And the, the newspaper is trying to figure out who did what. And, and, and we can gossip about who did what bad thing that week. Everybody knows everybody. But side application, this thing is not going to stay on. Side application, I want you to understand something that I found fascinating. It is not necessarily, 
in theme with the rest, but I thought it was just fascinating. Jesus always gathered with God's people because he thought it was important. Why is that so significant here? Because we have such a fickleness to us that we think going to church, for example, is about what we can receive. And the reality is, Jesus understood the importance of being with God's people, and so it was his custom that he was going to be there. And he went, and, and, and sometimes we have the, the, the thought that, you know, I don't like that church, and it's not perfect, and you know what, no church is perfect, but at least your church isn't trying to throw you off a cliff. And Jesus still went back. Think about that for a moment. Jesus understood the importance. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. This was important to Jesus. And if my first lesson is I think about what being a follower of Christ means, it means that I understand the importance of being with God's people. That Jesus went even to a place where they scorned Him and they did not want to be with Him. I pray that that is not our church, by the way, but I pray that people would want to be with God's people. And if we are a family, we want to be with God's people. So we have this return that he comes back to Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue, and, and they hear him teach, and they are astonished, and I don't think it's an astonishment like, oh wow, this is so good. It's an astonishment of where does he get off telling us? We know who he is. He grew up here. They ask where he has this authority. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They question him because they say, we know him. Isn't he the carpenter? He didn't get his education at no rabbi school. How does he have any possible authority to tell us anything? Notice what they say. They say, is he not the son of Mary? Remember the first time that Jesus visited, they said what? Is he not the son of Joseph? A year and a half later, it's the son of Mary. You know why? Because that is a derogatory expression. Because a good Jew would be the son of their father always. But Joseph was not the legitimate father of Jesus. And so they would go back to what the Pharisees would do and say, we have Abraham as our father. We're not born of illegitimacy like you are. The, the, the people there would have known the story and, and they would not have believed in the, um, the immaculate conception and the virgin birth of Jesus. They would have believed that Mary had conceived Jesus out of wedlock and he was illegitimate. So why not just say, hey, you don't have any authority here. You're the son of illegitimacy. You're the son of Mary, not the son of your father. It is also quite very well possible that by this time Joseph has died and is no longer here, which would be a fascinating thing. Sometimes I wish that there was more in Scripture than what we have. Can you imagine? You know, we talk about comfort in the loss of someone, a family member. Can you imagine your comfort coming from the man of the house suddenly saying, I will take charge, and it being Jesus Christ himself? After that funeral, where they laid Joseph to rest, can you imagine the comfort of Jesus coming back and saying to his mother, Mom, I got this. I'll take care of you. I'll provide. 
I will be your comfort. They talk through, you know, is he not the son of Mary and brothers James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? I mean, you think about it. Jesus is there, and it is quite possible, probably most likely, that in that audience was Mary and Jesus' four brothers that we know of and his at least two sisters, because it's plural. We don't know how many he had, but at this time we, we know that they didn't believe Jesus. I mean, they, they came to Jesus and, 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 and they say in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his brothers say you know, that they're coming, they hear about what Jesus is saying, and they literally say he's out of his mind, verse 21 of chapter 3. They don't believe Jesus. It's quite possible that they were old enough that they were married and had children. Maybe Jesus' nieces and nephews are in the audience. And Jesus preaches and teaches, and the response is apathy, derogatory, rejection. I've never had family mock me or be, as it says here in the text, we get their exact response, offended. Can you imagine that? Heartache hardship and pouring out your heart and loving people his family and they were offended another side application for you brothers and sisters don't ever ever give up on your family jesus never did according to tradition uh, they all came to belief after Jesus' resurrection Jesus loved them very, very much. In fact, we're told that Jesus specifically, as in Paul's account, in an incredible passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it tells us the gospel message, and then Jesus appears to a whole bunch of people. And in verse 7 of that chapter, it specifically says that after he rose from the dead, Jesus went and visited James, his brother. Can you imagine what that would have been like? James, having not believed, James, who had, who had said he was out of his mind, James, who probably always looked at his older brother, and, 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 and can you imagine, maybe that's part of the influence of why James wrote the things he did in his epistle in the, in the book of James, where he mentions the word brother 19 times. Thinking about his older brother, his big brother that took care of the family. The things that he said maybe, that, that he had said to the Son of God, that he had declared that he was out of his mind. Maybe those are the, the very thoughts that came into his mind as he wrote, be aware of your tongue and the words that you speak. Maybe he thought back to the things that he had literally said to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, never give up on your family. Jesus never did. But it tells us that they were offended. And Jesus tells us why. Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. The Hebrew idiom, we might know it a little bit better in the English vernacular. It's the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, think about it. The more familiar you are with someone, 
the more apathetic you might get, or the, more, the less amazed. Even though these people knew Him, they didn't believe Him. They, they said, we know where you came from. We know the things. We were around you. You want to know what it is to be a follower of Christ? Sometimes being a follower of Christ, the cost means rejection from even your family, your friends. Jesus says to His disciples in John chapter 15, if they reject Me, they will reject you also. They were so familiar with Him that they had lost the wonder and the awe of what was going on. And there's a sad reality in this text. And that sad reality is, it says in the next verse, and He could do no mighty work there, except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. Don't you think if there was one place on earth Jesus would want to do amazing things? Don't you think if there was one place on earth and one people that He wished He could do all things for, it would have been His close family and friends, His hometown. I've only preached one time at the church I grew up in. I'm kind of glad of that. I love the people there, but I just can't imagine preaching to people that know my past people I grew up around. Yeah, I remember you. You were no you were no saint. Why should I listen to you? What authority do you have? I remember you growing up. I can imagine that. But don't you think and, and believe me, when the opportunity came to preach in my home church that I grew up in, I was excited. I wanted to go because I love those people. I want to share what the Lord has done in my life. And I wanted them to know and understand. And I can imagine Jesus being the Son of God who loved people with such immense compassion that He would want His, his family and His friends to be the ones blessed by His ministry, to pour His love upon them. Family, friends, And yet there was familiarity, and it tells us that only a few came to Him. Isn't it sad that sometimes our lack of willingness to come to Him keeps Him from doing miraculous works in our lives? And notice what it says. It says He could do no mighty work, and He, verse 6, marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their own belief. It says in Scripture only two times that Jesus marvels. Only two times this word is used, that Jesus marvels. The first time is Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. It's a story where the centurion has a servant who is sick, and so he goes to Jesus, and he tells Jesus, hey, just say the word, and you can heal my servant. And Jesus, it says, he, was, he, he, he marveled at the centurion's faith, because essentially what the centurion said, he says, I understand because I'm a man of authority that when I give orders they're obeyed you know why they're obeyed because people understand that my orders aren't the orders of me they're the orders of the throne and so they respect that and so what the centurion was saying is I get you that your authority is from God and he believed that and he said so just give the word and I know my servant will be healed and Jesus marvels at that So he marvels one time at belief and here a second time at their unbelief. Looking at the people he grew up with, people he knew, people he loved, family, and they rejected him. Imagine that. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is willing 
and wanting to do miraculous things in our lives. Well, if we are complacent or doubtful, he will do no miraculous things. We know he's willing. We know he wants to. In, in uh, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 41, you have this incredible passage that after Jesus walks through the triumphal entry, he's marched in on the, on the donkey, on the colt of a donkey, and they're all shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to, uh, to, uh, uh, to the Messiah. He comes, and, he, and they're shouting, and they're all cheerful. And then it says that Jesus draws near to the city. He sees it. He weeps over it. And then he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And he goes on and he tells about the desolation. If you would have only come to me. Later on in Matthew, we're told that Jesus looked over the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as chicks, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I think the question that I have to ask myself when I look at this text is familiarity breeds contempt. Has Jesus and the gospel become so familiar in my life that I expect no miracles? That it just becomes another thing, another part of my life, and therefore it has no power. You won't be a follower of Christ. It means that you may be rejected by those who once knew you. It may mean that you are going to be in a lonely place because sometimes you will go to your family and friends and they will reject you and it is because of their unbelief and Jesus marvels because they of all people should have known there was something different about him. So what is the response of Jesus? He went. He went. He left. And he goes and he preaches around to the surrounding villages. So put it in perspective. Jesus, having been out in this incredible ministry where he's healing countless numbers of people. He's casting out demons. He's proclaiming truth. He's setting the captive free. Uh, remember, in that first passage in Luke, he stands up and he says, this is the, the prophecy of Isaiah and it will be fulfilled in me. And you will say, heal yourself, physician. And you will say, perform the miracles in Capernaum that you performed elsewhere. And Jesus did all these miracles and he comes back to his hometown and they reject him. And Jesus doesn't stay where he is rejected. He moves on. And then you get this practicum, right? This, this mission Starting in verse 7, there's a couple of things I want us to look at. He says, it says that he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. I think there's a prerequisite when it comes to missions, and the prerequisite is that you must be called to Jesus first. Sounds like a no-duh thing, right? But there are so many people that feel like they're to go, but they haven't been called by Jesus. When I finished ministry school, I had in my mind what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a pastor and I wanted to go to a church and I wanted to either plant a church or start a church or to go to a church. And I spent the first two years of my ministry in the factory because the Lord called me there. And He gave me a ministry there. 
Understand this. He calls to himself first those whom he sends, then he sends them. And there is a pairing that goes on. He says that he sent them out two by two. Does that mean that when we go out as missionaries, we should only go out two by two? Not necessarily. I think there's a principle that we should never go alone. And when I say that, I mean this, that Jesus always goes with those whom he sends today. We are never in this ministry alone. There's a power. It says that he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. And it's a different type of wording than what is specifically worded when Jesus is, uh, appears to the church at Pentecost. He, it is a different type of power. This is an authority versus the power. It's not dunamis, which is the Greek word for power that Jesus says that when my servant returns, he will give you power. Um, this is something different. Jesus gave them authority. It was temporary. Um, but what baffles me, and again, there's so many times where I look at a text and I say, I wish there was more written here. He gave authority to Judas. And Judas went out and cast out demons. Healed the sick. Judas was a part of the twelve. Who got paired up with Judas? Can you imagine that? Later on, after the resurrection, after Jesus has betrayed, you know, I was paired up with Judas. Those are fascinating things to me. It has no relevance to today's sermon, but it's just fascinating to me. Don't you guys ever think that way or walk through a text and be like, man, I wish there was something more here. But they were given power, and then there's an incredible principle here that I think is so important for us. It says he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. We're not going to break down each and every one of those because there is no reason to. It's not the specifics of what they weren't supposed to take or what they were supposed to take. But I think there's a principle. He says, take nothing. What does that mean? I think this is so important for our own ministries, especially as a church and as individuals. God doesn't need anything that you have to accomplish his mission. He doesn't. I think so oftentimes the church tries to borrow the world's power in accomplishing things. We try to borrow money or borrow uh, uh, popularity or borrow influence. God doesn't need any of that. He says no buying our way into people's affections. If you want to know what I mean, watch the political uh, running as we get closer to November, right? What do they do? They spend billions and billions of dollars trying to buy your vote with influence in commercials and in advertising and so forth. And it's amazing the billions of dollars that are spent on that. We don't need to spend billions of dollars to influence people for the kingdom of God. We don't need money. He says, don't, don't take a bunch of extra preparations, not heavily prepared. God doesn't need our plans and our schemes. He doesn't even need our help. Acts chapter 17, it says, nor Paul in this incredible sermon at Mars Hill, he says to, to the people there, nor is he, meaning God, served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's not that we just wing it, by the way. We don't just show up and, and be like, oh, well, let's just see how it goes. But we rely on Him. 
and that our plans come from Him. In Proverbs, there's an incredible proverb that says that the horse is prepared for battle, but victory comes from the Lord. In Psalm 127, verse 1, it talks about how uh, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. There is uh, uh, not a dependence upon our own plans. Jesus says, I want you guys to go out, but it's not that I want you to come up with this great scheme and plan of how to do it. I want you to rely on me. And one of the reasons why we say it's not about the prohibition of the things that Jesus says, because later on in, in, in Luke, Jesus recounts the story with them. It's in Luke chapter 22. Jesus goes back and he's reminding his disciples, kind of reflecting back. Remember that time I sent you out? And in verse 35, he says, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandal, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So now he's saying, okay, remember when I sent you out with nothing? Yeah, how'd that work out for you? Did you guys lack anything when you went out? No, we didn't. Well, now I want you to take. I want you to take money. I want you to take a knapsack. I want you to be prepared. The purpose and the reason is because Jesus was trying to teach them. Trying to teach them that ministry has to do with the power of God and His working in us. Not in the things that we can bring to the table and the things that we can accomplish. And so He says, once you've got that lesson learned, now go. Go prepared. It almost seems like a contradiction unless we understand that it's not about the renouncing of specific items, but a lesson in ministry that power comes from God. Notice what he says. Then he sends them out and they go from place to place. He says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake the, off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony Against them. And in some older translations, it says that anyone who refuses you will be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because he sends them out with the power, and he doesn't want them to just be wanderers, but to stay where they're accepted and to proclaim the gospel and to minister. It's like he's saying, you know, hospitality is such an important thing. And if they welcome you, you stay. Don't just go to the next best thing, but stay where they have you and minister there. And he gives them a purpose. And the purpose, it says in verse 12, and this is so vitally important, the purpose is, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Our ministry and our purpose is to bring men and women and children to repentance. What does that mean to repent? In fact, when Peter and John preach a message in the book of Acts. The peoples get so uh, convicted at heart, it says that they were cut to the heart. They say, brothers, what must we do to be saved? And, and Peter stands up and he says, believe and repent. Repent is a Hebrew concept, and it means to change one's mind. That is the essence of coming to Christ. That when we think that I am my own God and that I do what I want and I will do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. When I understand who Jesus is, the repentance that happens is that my mind is transformed into such a way that I realize that I need Jesus. And apart from Him, I can do nothing. 
That's what we're called to preach. And we live in a culture that says, we want a Jesus that doesn't mess with my life. We want a Jesus who isn't going to impact me. Paul says that in the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1, he says, In the last days there will be perilous times because men will be lovers of themselves and not lovers of God. They will deny the power of God in order to uh, uh, play church and pretend, but they will deny God's power because they want self. I realize that throughout history, mankind has always been selfish and self-centered. But it feels like that's growing stronger and stronger. And we need people to repent. And the only way that happens is Christ. And notice in verse 13, it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I'm not going to go into details about the oil I think uh, we can be careful. I'm sure it probably was not, and I'm going to be blasphemous here, probably was not essential oil. It's not the oil specifically that is a magical ointment. It's an understanding of the symbolic nature that they are anointing the Holy Spirit for His power and His work because it is Him that does the healing. You notice in James when they talks about how if there is anyone sick among you, call the elders of the church and they are to anoint you with oil. And it is pray. And, and, and then they are to pray. And it is the prayer that heals. It's not the oil. There is a symbolic nature of the Holy Spirit and the authority that comes with it. And it says that they anointed with oil and they had the authority to cast out many demons. And it, it is this very thing that when we talk about our ministry, that when we go out, we are to have proof. And, and, and so oftentimes we sit here and we say, what is the evidence that that church is growing? What is the evidence that, 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 that there is a tangible measuring of, of what makes something a ministry successful Let me tell you what the proof is. The proof is miraculous things that happen because we can sit there and look at them and say, only is that done because they were touched by Jesus Christ. I can tell you of people whose lives have been transformed, that they were drunkards and that they wanted nothing to do with anything good. And then I hear people say, what happened to them? That's miraculous. That their heart was transformed from death to life. And it was only because they were touched by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you want to know if our ministry is fruitful? We can look and see supernatural things happen that are only explained by being in contact with Jesus. They had authority that Jesus sent them. We have authority. You want proof of that? Look at what Jesus says to the church When he is raised up, he says uh, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will have power. You will have dunamis. And I wonder if there is no power in us because we are so familiar with Jesus and the gospel that has transformed our lives. We have placed it into mere nothingness. We've lost its power because we've become complacent because it doesn't move us. Jonathan Edwards once said he was a huge proponent and also an opponent of the Great Awakening because he he said, you know, we have to be careful because emotions can carry us too far. Emotions should not be what control us, but shame on me if I am not moved to tears by the gospel. 
to realize the mercy and the grace that God has poured upon us. That's a heart touched and a heart that is touched. You ever, you run across these people once in a while and you're like, that person is so amazing. They're so enthusiastic. They're so filled with joy and excitement. What is it? They have the Holy Spirit and they are excited about a gospel that has transformed their lives. There's a brother that I, that I love so dearly that anytime you're around this guy, you're like, that guy, I've never seen him angry. I've never, I'm sure he has his moments, but I've never seen him anything but enthusiastic. And I can tell you why. Because Jesus touched his heart and he loves Jesus so much. Brothers and sisters, we don't need borrowed oil from this world. We live in a society where we talk about... Uh, uh, importing oil from Saudi Arabia and making them wealthy. And this is a whole political agenda, right? And, 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 and we import things. But the reality is the church is doing the same thing. We're trying to import from the world a message of, of, of various things because we look and we've gotten so familiar with the gospel and we say, well, that can't really change a person's life. I need something dynamic to add to it. No, you don't. You have Jesus Christ and His Word and He transforms people. Follower of Christ, they followed him. His disciples followed him. Are we going to follow him today? Following him and what he does and what he calls us to might mean rejection. It might mean rejection from those close to us. It might mean rejection that somebody looks at us and says, yeah, I know who you are. Why should I believe you? I'm familiar with you. You know, wh why they always say it's hardest to minister, to, pre uh, to, to, to share the gospel with friends and family, maybe even co-workers that you're with all the time. Why is it so hard versus a stranger? Because that stranger doesn't know me. But the reality is following Christ means that's hard because Christ means repentance and change might mean being lonely even in your own house and with your friends. Being a follower of Christ means being with God's people. Putting a place of importance on that. It means proclaiming repentance. Repentance is the requirement. Salvation is never on your terms. It's not. On God's terms. God's terms are this Your ways are the ways of death. It means that, that no matter what you do, you are marked and tainted by sin, and there is nothing you can do. In Romans chapter 3, we have this bleak picture of humanity that tells us that there is no one who does good, no, not one, that our lips are filled with venom, and our, our minds are always perceiving, conceiving schemes of wickedness. And, and this is the heart of humanity, that no matter how good you think you are, the reality is that before God, you are black, filled with sin and despair, and death. And here's the good news. Jesus came, lived among us, was perfect and holy and just, and He said, their punishment is more than they can ever manage. So I will take it. And Jesus dies. He's buried. And the good news is, as 
Paul writes in that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians that this is the gospel that on the third day he rose from the dead and he appeared to many because he brings life. And he offers that to us. And we need to preach repentance because it is the requirement that we would see God for who he is and our minds would be transformed in such a way that we understand that it is him and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of hope. That even when we come to those who might be familiar and they reject the truth. Father, the message of hope is this, that we are not rejected by you. Father, I pray for us this morning that as we seek to follow after you, that we would find hope and encouragement from you and you alone. Father, I pray that we would remember that our ministry and our message is a message of hope and repentance that comes only from you, and we don't need this world's means and methods to accomplish it. God, we thank you that we can follow after you. And that you don't run so far ahead and then look back and say, would you catch up? But no, you wait for us and sometimes you carry us. Father, I pray that we would remind ourselves of the gospel, that we would not become so familiar that you are not doing marvelous works in our own lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.